Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. L-A-S-I-K. LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress, where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. Today on the podcast, we have two ladies that I love so deeply, Mandana Diani and Deborah Messing. Deborah is an actor, philanthropist, and let's be honest, a global icon. Mandana is an entrepreneur, an attorney, co-founder of I Am A Voter, and one of my very best friends. Together, these ladies host a podcast called The Dissenters, where they talk to some of their heroes, people who have challenged the status quo, stood up to injustice, who are trailblazing, And for some reason, they asked me to be a dissenter. I'm still pinching myself. I had so much fun nerding out with these two on my podcast today, talking all things activism, friendship, privilege, how we spend it, and so much more. Enjoy. It's good to see your face. It's so good to see you. I miss you. I miss you, too. It feels like forever. It feels like so long and I feel like time is just going by so fast and it's it's like impossible to do all the things you need to do for work and life and have a life and I don't I don't get it. Well, we've never tried to have a life with a global pandemic and a civil rights movement at the same time. You it's know. Incredible. For people at home who are probably wondering how we all know each other, Oh my God. I mean, Mandana, we spoke on a panel together. I don't even know how long ago that was, 10 years ago? At least, yeah. At least. Wow. Um, yeah, we spoke on this panel in LA. Uh, 
and just loved each other from, from jump. And, you know, I mean, Deborah, you know how it is. She walked in and, and I remember looking at her thinking, that is the chicest person I've ever seen. She's so cool. She's, she's so effortless. She's so beautiful and like, looks like a rock star. I don't understand what's going on. And then I realized I was on a panel with her and then I felt totally intimidated. And I thought, I wonder if she's going to want to be nice to me. And then halfway through the panel, I thought, do you think she wants to be my friend? Um, <laughs> that was my experience. And now you're one of my best friends. Wait, thank God. What? It's so annoying. Yes. It's so annoying how like it's- pretty and chic and brilliant. And, you know, it's, yeah, Mandana is a unicorn. Yeah. Please every time she clip. walks in a room. No, it's true. Every time you walk in a room, I think I have to throw away all my clothes and to completely start over. I don't know how to dress myself. I don't think I know how to be an adult. God. Uh, literally right? my entire time sitting on that panel I was just like oh my god this is the smartest person that has ever spoken the amount of passion that oozes out of every single part of your body when you speak is insane and I just remember being like what is she talking about because you just Deborah and I always talk about this because you're like this walking encyclopedia of information and you don't yeah. forget things so you can just like drop in like a historical fact from like 1374 and like name <laughs> seven people that worked on the Supreme Court 100 years like it's just like you know everything and it's I don't so understand weird I don't you know understand. like the name of every congressman and senator and you can name every like law of every I'm like what happens in your brain? Like I, I mean, I'm a nerd obviously. And I went to law school and I feel like every time I would go into something, I would learn it. And then I would walk out and be like, control, all delete, make some space. Like, <laughs> But you somehow like retain all of it. It's crazy. But here's what's weird. Okay. I remember a lot of strange facts. I don't know every single Senator you're being kind, but, but I, but I certainly, I know my brain is a, is a weird kind of treasure trove of <laughs> strange data. I do, I do admit that, but the problem is, and I think, and Deborah, I wonder if you feel this also something that clicked as a kind of aha moment for me was for us working in TV, you are trained to memorize pages and pages of dialogue, especially when you do a one hour show, like when you were yep. working, you know, on smash or any of the other amazing things that you've done, you're doing nine pages a day. So you're memorizing all this story, all this dialogue, you're, you're figuring out how to have real feelings about all of these things. And then the next day you have to do it again. So what I've realized is that while I might be able to tell you how much the United States GDP would increase if we created gender parity, <laughs> but at the snap of our fingers, it's over $200 billion or an average of 12 points. I couldn't tell you when anyone's birthday is. I don't know anyone's phone number. I barely know my own. I can't remember things. Like I just can't remember things. And That's you so can tell me a story and I'm so right there with you and I'm in it and I'll have a thought and maybe I'll have advice and, and we can talk about it until two in the morning over a bottle of wine. But a year later, if you reference it, I'll look at you like, me too. what are you talking about? And the minute you start to tell the story again, then I can repeat it verbatim. But until something jogs my memory, it's gone. It's just gone. Because I've had to learn to be really, really invested and then start over the next day. So we all have a control out the lead. Yes. And I really, I really don't know why. I don't know why I, I understand health data. You need to, be, you need to become a, neuro, a neuroscientist. Oh my God, Deborah and I were on vacation like 
a year. <laughs> I don't even know when that was. And she's holding, because she was before she did the I Love Lucy episode. So she's walking around with this book of words and pages from I Love Lucy. And we were sitting at the table and she looks at me because we were having this whole conversation about memory. And she's like, you see this? I know every word in here. That lovely woman we've talked to 45 times? No idea what her name is. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> I, your eyes. I was like, how is this possible? No, you guys, I am the same. It's Honestly, awful. It's awful. It's so, and, and I'm so embarrassed by it. It seems, it seems so rude too, because yes. I've been introduced to the same person five <laughs> times. And I know that that person is like, I have, I've, I've had to say my name five mm-hmm. times. Like she is so self-involved. She's yep. so, you know, and I'm just like, no, my brain just doesn't, doesn't work that way. Yeah. I can't, I don't know why names are like kryptonite for me and same. And then I have all this sort of, I have this deep seated, like self-conscious anxiety where I go, oh my God, that person thinks I don't remember their name because I'm like a quote unquote famous person who doesn't yes. care. And it's yes. literally not that. I'll, I, there are people in my neighborhood. I know the names of their dogs, but not their names. I don't know why my brain is like this. I'm like, oh, look, it's Tucker and Tucker's dad. I know your name. <laughs> but I know that your dog is allergic to chicken. And so I give him different treats. What's wrong with me? It's so horrible. It's Tucker's so horrible. dad is now going to introduce himself to you in the park. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, probably. And be like, I heard on your podcast, you still don't know my name. It's been nine years. Thanks. <laughs> God, it's so embarrassing. But that's funny. It makes me, it weirdly makes me feel better, Deborah, that you have that also. And I I do wonder if it's some weird byproduct of what we do for a living. Probably. And and obviously, audience, that's how I know Deborah. I mean, I I knew you and was such a fan of you and and so deeply loved you for, for so long as, you know, an artist and as a storyteller. And when we finally got to start hanging out, I was just like, oh my God what do I say to her? And I remember you were like, you're such a kick-ass activist online. I was like, what? Excuse oh, me, yeah. messing. It was so surreal for me. And I was so excited to finally meet you, oh. you know, because I felt like we were, we were family members because we were both on NBC, right? Yes. And you yes. were filming in Chicago yep. and I was filming in New York at the time, Mysteries of Laura. And yeah. we did our commercial with Mariska. Yeah. And that was the first time we actually like spent quality time together. It was so um, fun. And uh, yeah, yeah. You Isn't it funny when you remember she's Deborah Messing? Because like all the yes. time I'm like, she's like the greatest mom and friend and she's so funny and quirky and is like eating weird, funny things. And she's so like, <laughs> she's just Deborah. And then all of a sudden there's like something that connects it and you're like, oh, wait, that's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love, I love, that's the thing that um, Mandana and I have been talking a lot about is that through activism, the, the, the wonderful byproduct is that you, you end up finding your people. Yes. You know, I, I I mean, I, I have longtime friends and, and we have um, bonds that will never break that have to do with growing up and going through you know, milestones together. But I think that there is something unique about um, fighting with someone. Yeah. Yeah. Being shoulder to shoulder with people. And, and I think when you also get into these arenas and you realize that they require an immense amount of emotional stamina, which is hard when, when things are so sensitive, 
And when so many of the people who wind up in these arenas do so because of empathy, I think when you realize, you know, there's this weird misnomer in the world where people think it's good for your job to be political and oh. it's actually so dangerous and it, yeah. and it comes at a great cost often, you know, for work. And when people are willing to sacrifice to stand up for what's right, it gives you such a clear understanding of what they're made of. And yeah. every time I'm in, I'm in a space that I know is quote risky, the other people step into it. I'm like, Oh, those are my people. <laughs> these, these are my people, people that are like, Oh, you don't like that. I'm here. That's okay. <laughs> what do you do when you get exhausted from everything? All the, you know, your hat is in so many rings and you're mm -hmm. juggling so many things at the same time. And there, you know, are, there are setbacks you know, mm. in our, and our hopes are dashed temporarily. And, mm. it, you know, that, that takes a toll on your body, on your emotional health, on your mental health. What mm -hmm. do you, what do you do? It's kind of twofold for me. I have to check in with myself a little bit. The first thing that always either goes on the back burner or straight into the garbage is self-care for me. And Same. It's you know, the one I'm, thing I just refuse to make time for. Yes. And, and, and what I've had to come to terms with is that, and I've learned this from people who are wiser than me, is that this is such a long fight. If we don't maintain our stamina, the rooms that need us will lose us. And so even if it's realizing I'm exhausted and taking a deep breath and literally, you know, making like a giant mason jar full of warm water with lemon and, and putting my phone in a drawer for 20 minutes and sitting down, reading something, just, just stepping back. That's something I'm really working on. Um, and, and on the other end of it, so there's a little bit of having to go in, you know, I think of mm -hmm. that as, as the micro work. And then mm -hmm. on the other end of it, there's the macro where, where, when things feel overwhelming, if I can, you know, check in with myself and realize that that's how I'm feeling. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling, I'm getting caught in that loop of how are we going to do this? If I can pull back and look at the landscape of a cause or of our country or of a movement, I have to remind myself that so many people have done this for so much longer than we have. Mm -hmm. And that, and that the organizers who have been putting in the work and that, that the civil rights leaders of the 1960s were preparing us for the civil rights movement of 2020, mm -hmm. that, that we are seeing conversations around um, what we invest in as communities, signaling what our priorities are and why are our priorities, not our children, our schools, health, welfare, mental health. You know, these conversations are only possible because a group of women founded Black Lives Matter seven years ago, mm -hmm. you know, Wow. The the perseverance that is required is not lost on me. And and when I stepped into activist spaces in, I don't know, 2007, um, I had to very quickly learn from smarter people in the room that if you're not prepared for the longevity of this, do something else. A activism is not social media. It doesn't constantly refresh. It is a long game.
and you have to be in it for the long haul. It's not sexy. It's not immediate. But if, if you want to really be here and make sustainable, lasting change and learn about systemic issues and how to change systems, that to me, I mean, this feels like, you know, social rocket science. I, I think it's yeah. fascinating and rewarding and I wouldn't know how else to do it. But I am certainly, when that makes me feel inspired and then I tap back in, I'm like, okay, I, I need to figure out how to maybe feed myself a little better and sleep a little more. Because <laughs> I, if I burn out, then, then I can't show up. Yeah. But it's hard. I think about it, especially for the two of you, because you guys have kids. And I, yeah. and I wonder about what it's like to have to make sure you're making space for your kids and and especially Deborah because you know you're you know Mandana your kids are little but Deborah your son is old enough to really understand what's going on and I understand yeah. that even with little kids you have to begin teaching them about these things how how do you each figure out how to segment your your families in ways that you know, that, that'll allow you to feel like you're not overwhelmed. I mean, it's like so type A, but part of it is just schedule, 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 right? I think mm. particularly when they're young and then you're like working on naps and you're, work, you know, there's so much that goes into it. But like, I think it comes from just being an organizer myself and having helped like run businesses. It's like everything is organized for me by like, this is who picks up. This is who drops off. My husband is, and my husband's amazing. So it's like, he has these responsibilities. I have these, my, you know, I'm like so privileged to live near my, my entire family. So they chip in a lot. It's just a lot of management of time mm -hmm. and where people are. And, and I think it's, you know, what I the, the greatest learning factors I think I had when when my first daughter Anderson was born was was the realization that I, I think I never realized I, I really had this like level of self-importance before of like, oh, my God, nothing in the world will get done if I don't do it. And then you have a child and you're home with your child and you're like, oh, everything's fine. Like the world continued. The businesses <laughs> didn't fall apart. Right. Like the emails got sent yeah. and and it became OK to ask for more help. And it became OK to say, you know what, I don't need to go to that event. Everyone at the event is still going to have a good time if I'm not there. Mm. Um, and so I think managing time and also managing like my my own expectations of myself and and rooting that in some reality about what my time actually needs to do. And and it's weird because the even this time within this pandemic and being home, it has like almost forced me to reevaluate that again. Like what were all these things I used to do with my time? Mm. Um and I and I think like really understanding how valuable time is for me happened when I had children and and everything else kind of fell in line. It was like, okay, this is work, but work is work. Like work needs to stop at some point you know, you, there has to be a shut off and I'm not going to miss bath time. I'm not going to miss these things. And, you know, I've, I mean, just working with Deborah, like it does not matter where she is or what she's doing. She will get on a plane and she will go home and she will see Roman for the thing that is important to Roman and that is important to her. And it's non-negotiable. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's kind of creating those boundaries, even for yourself going into experiences of, of kind of what, you know, you expect of yourself and what people are allowed to expect of you. My last company that I worked for, I was like, I know I used to go and travel for fashion week for like eight weeks at a time. I'm not getting on a plane for more than three days for work. Sorry. 
<laughs> I think that it's important to acknowledge um, uh, our privilege when yeah. we have this conversation, mm-hmm. because as a white woman um, uh, who has enough income to not worry about paying my bills, um, it 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 is a privilege to be able to say, uh, "I'm sorry." Anytime my child has anything at school, I'm going, and mm. you have to you have to adjust, or else I'm not doing this job. And so I think that I, I'm 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 keenly aware that it took 30 years in the business to get for me to get to this point where I can actually actively advocate for myself and my son as a single mother. I think it was very different when I was a new mom. And um, I actually think that Mandana, right now, I think that the age of the girls, I think it's actually the most difficult uh, in, in trying to be involved and active and to be able to be a wife, be a mother, be a bi- an entrepreneur, businesswoman, and also to take action in, in social justice, mm. you know, because it is, it is it is so micromanaged because it there it you know it is naps and it is you know the 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 food and the bedtime and everything it's it's so consequential and i think yeah. it it's harder to carve out time mm-hmm. um the difference that that i feel now that my son is older is that what's happening in the world feels like it is impacting him for the first time. Like when he was three and I went to Africa on behalf of PSI, you know, as ambassador for HIV AIDS, I had to go away for 12 days and I'd never been away from him ever. And he was three and I was going away for 12 days. And I remember the pain of that and feeling, feeling very conflicted and feeling like in some way I was, I was, um, betraying him and my role as a mother but I was able to tell him what I was doing and tell him you know explain to him what the situation was you know in Zimbabwe where I was going at the time and he wanted to give me clothes that he had outgrown and so I said okay we're gonna you you pick out the things that you want me to bring and I will bring them and so you know to to get the kids involved um, I th- early and mm. learning about charity and about um, being an active uh, an active citizen mm. I think is important um, now you know he's 16 so you know trying to put myself in his shoes as okay I'm at school I'm in high school and there are shootings it's it's a whole other it's a whole other world. Yeah, I think that idea to always raise your kids with a sense that they can contribute is such a gift um, that parents give to give to their kids. You know, I think we're seeing now the the kind of unintended, I believe, on 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 the part of a lot of parents and communities, not unintended uh, by the system because the system was designed to work exactly as it is. But but we see these unintended consequences of a lack of real deep repetitive education on civic engagement 
you know, schools were having civics removed from classrooms. I think mm-hmm. a lot of parents didn't realize that. And a lot of parents, I, I, I talk to a lot of friends now who are figuring out how to do this with kids who are saying, you know, we are the ones who have to teach our kids that democracy is an action verb. It doesn't work unless we work it. Mm-hmm. And and you, there was always this assumption that you would learn that in school and then you discover that there are powers that be that want us to be disenfranchised and want us to not know how the government world is structured because it makes it easier for people in power to maintain power by, you know, subverting democracy in, in you know, ways that vary in extremes on the spectrum. I really heartened by my friends who have kids who talk about the ways that they are explaining this stuff, you know, Mandana, I love seeing Anderson talking about how she can't wait to vote and, and, she you know, to be president. Be president. Yeah. <laughs> she you know? be. But and, she does, she volunteers for I'm a voter all the time and she wants to register people and she, but we talk about voting since she was two and, and we vote all the time and we'll vote on what ice cream flavor we're all going to eat for dinner. <sighs> but it's her understanding mm. that, you know, you have an active say in the, the outcome because by voicing your opinion. And so it's training, you know, we've been working so hard on training her to understand the power of her participation. Um, and we let her kind of pick the things that really matter to her. So like there was a period where she really was was so sad to learn about the ocean and um, pollution. And so we would go on the weekends and she would clean up the beaches and and that made her really feel like she was a part of something. And so it's weird. I don't, I, I think as young as they're willing to engage, which can be really like two or three years old. Like it's, it's so amazing to just include, like I take her with me everywhere. I take, she went to every women's March with me, you know, she loves it. Yeah. And she wants to understand it and read books. And, you know, we read books and um, she, she has a pretty great understanding, even though she's five of, of how society works and how at the foundation of all of it, it's kindness because kindness is empathy and kindness is community. And so she is responsible for kindness. Mm -hmm. In the last two weeks specifically, because of everything that's been happening with all of these protests all around the world um, and talking about education, you know, I, I, I went all the way through my master's and I never had a black history class. My entire, my entire educational career. I never had a women's studies class. And, you know, and I know that my son, you know, doesn't have classic civic stuff, but, but in his school, he has all of that. He, he has, you know, and it's just, it's incredible to recognize the generational gap in mm. um, education, because we depend so much on our schools to teach these things to our children. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if it, it wasn't even being discussed 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and that's, that's, it, it's hard, it's hard to come to terms with that, how mm-hmm. we failed, how we, how our country has, has failed all of us in that way. Yeah. And, and I think that that, that's been part of what's so interesting is as we do have these conversations around shifting budgets, you know, as activists have coined the term defund the police, which has very intentionally um, been chosen as an agitational phrase, as a phrase that sounds extreme so that it requires further inspection. 
the idea being that we have been defunding education, healthcare, communities, community safety for years. While crime has been going down, we've been increasing budgets. So imagine if we reduced those budgets back to a more, I don't want to say same, but a, but a more appropriate size and put some of that money back into schools. Imagine what we mm-hmm. could do. Imagine the, the art therapies and the, and the, the music programs and, and the things that really help kids find themselves and, and, and the women's studies and, and travel to explore black history and all of the things that our kids deserve that, and that feels exciting to me. And mm-hmm. all of, all of that comes back to the, the census, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, right now that's, that's the most pressing thing is, you know, it's trying to get everybody to participate and to fill out the census. Yes. And, you know, because all of our, our local government, all of the, the, the monies that are distributed are based on, on that information. Yeah. Um, and that's something, you know, I, I was never taught. No, me neither. And, and that's part of what interests me, because obviously we all find ourselves here. You know, we find ourselves being women who have careers, um, which you can see where they might overlap. But really, we we have these deep friendships because of <laughs> our, our civic commitments, because of activism, because of the work that we do together. And, and in thinking about what we what information we did and didn't have access to, you know, we were growing up. It, it makes me want to go backwards, which I always love to do with people anyway. So, so perhaps let's start easiest question and then we'll go into what we were learning. Um, But for, for that kind of context, for childhood context, can you each tell me where you grew up? I grew up in uh, East Greenwich, Rhode Island. It was a rural suburb. I grew up on four acres of land with, um, pine trees everywhere and um Mm. the nearest gas station was eight miles away and i was one of three jewish kids in the whole school system um i i was born in iran and we left iran i think when i was about five years old we left as religious refugees went and we traveled through um italy um where we stayed with one of our neighbors from Iran um, and then sought asylum through uh, this organization called Hyas, which helps uh, Jewish refugees resettle in America. And then they helped us resettle in New York. And so we, we moved to New York when I was like basically six and we were there about three years or two years. And then we moved to LA and then I've basically been here forever within a one mile radius of my family <laughs> with no option to leave. <laughs> <laughs> How important was family to each of you and, and tradition and, and, you know, obviously, Mandana, you came to California with family and there is such a, a sort of beautiful Jewish community here in L.A. But, you know, Deborah, you're talking about being one of three Jewish kids in your whole town. Did that feel isolating? Did you experience discrimination? What, what was yes. that like? Well, both my parents grew up very poor in Brooklyn. And um, so when they got married, my father got two job offers. One was in Long Island. One was in Rhode Island. And the cost of living was much lower 
to live in Rhode Island. And so that's what determined them moving to Rhode Island. And when we arrived, they, they realized it was a very different community. You know, they grew up in Brooklyn, um, where, uh, it was very diverse, um, every color, every, every religion. And we moved somewhere where it was, it was white. It was white Irish Catholic. And, um, you know, our, our temple was a half hour away. That was the closest temple. So it, it was, I, I, I learned in retrospect how isolated and alone I felt growing up. Um, I was there one Halloween, we woke up and, um, there was a swastika painted on my grandfather's car in the driveway. And I, I remember vividly the reaction, the fear, the shame that came along with that. And, Mm. um, so I, I think early I got a sense that I was an other in that community. And, um, as a result, I tried to disappear and tried to not bring attention to myself. Um, but I do remember there was, uh, we didn't have anyone, anyone of color until in our community, um, I think until like seventh grade and, uh, this wonderful girl, Heidi, uh, came to school and, um, we became friends. And I remember bringing her home and asking my mom, mom, can I have, you know, my friend Heidi come over? She's like, of course. And I remember after my mom, after Heidi left, she was like, well, she was lovely. And I said, yeah, she's really nice. And she was like, I, I'm so happy that it never even occurred to you to tell me that she was black. And I was like, well, why would I tell you that? <laughs> and, she, and she was like, that's why I'm proud because it should, it should not matter. And, um, and that was the end of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but there was, there was a, a cultural struggle. You know, I, I, it was very clear to me that my parents wished that we lived in a Jewish community. They wished that they could tell me that I could only date Jewish boys. They made it clear that if we lived in New York, that would be the, the directive at the time. But ultimately, I think we as a family uh, grew a lot through the experience. And, and when did you discover performing arts? Was it in Rhode Island or yeah. after? Hmm. Oh, no, no. I, start, I, you know, I was dancing before I could walk. And so when I, was <laughs> th- when I was three, I was in ballet class and then tap class and then jazz class. And um, I was, you know, my mother made albums when she was a teenager. She was a singer. And so music was on all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was singing and my goal was to, you know, be a triple threat on Broadway. That was my dream. And I, I remember when I was in elementary school, I said, Mom, I want to go to fame. Um, there was a TV show called Fame that was the performing arts uh, high school. And I said, I want to go to New York and dance on the taxi cabs. <laughs> and um, I literally said that because that's the opening of the of the TV show. Yeah. And my mom and my mom was like, "You, there is no way I would let you go to New York. You, you, it's too dangerous. You grew up, you know, next to a farm, running over and watching horses being born. You are not, you are not ready for New York City. And um, 
And so I just did all the plays and went to performing arts camp and, and did all of that and then went to college and studied it. And Mandana, what were you into as a kid? I mean, it's, you know, it's like to go to your first question, I think it's, it's very strange when you leave, like there were Jewish people in Iran for a thousand years, but like we were Iranian before we were mentally Jewish, right? Because you're, every food we eat, like Persian food and we have Persian music mm-hmm. and we dance Persian. Th- and so when the revolution happened and that whole crisis came about where we, you know, where we had to flee our country was the first time where we were like, oh, we're Jewish and that's different. And people don't like us because of that. And it was mm. very strange to reevaluate like your own identity because it was really not how we identified ourselves. Everything about what we do, even today, our language, our food, every cultural tradition is is really wrapped around being Persian. Um, mm. And so it was very strange to feel like you're not welcomed in the country that you were born and all your ancestors were born in. My mm. dad's Kurdish. You know, he his dad... My dad's dad was the rabbi of the entire Kurdish tribe. He was, you know, it was like, it's so weird because our roots are so entrenched in like that, that part of the world. Um, and then mm-hmm. you're like, you have to leave. <laughs> um, and so just leaving itself was super traumatic. And, you know, coming to America, and I, we always say this, but it's like the irony and, and the the horrible irony of of the propaganda that you see some this administration continue to, to push out is that like, Immigrants are actually the most patriotic people in our country because, like, mm-hmm. we know how shitty our lives were. And, like, we came here. Like, I always say America saved my life. You know, it saved my family's life. Like, it gave us the opportunity to be the best versions of ourselves and to live, you know, as beautifully as we do today. Like, me, we literally are textbook cases of the American dream. Like we came here without a dollar and I became a lawyer and my brother became a surgeon and we have this amazing life and all of these incredible opportunities that only happen because America welcomed us. And so, and I think that's, that was really what rooted me in all of the activism was that I felt this, this huge debt. Like I always felt since I can remember that I needed to give back to make it okay that I got so much from this experience. And yeah, um, but I, I think also it's, it's really scary. It's like you, when you come to a country and you don't speak the language and you have no money and you have no idea where you're going, I mean, all you have is your family. And so I just held my parents' hand and we went through it and my mom learned English so she could teach us English. And my brother had to look out for me when people would make fun of me because I didn't speak English, you know, and, and we just became so close. And there's this like, weird like village mentality with other people that are like you where it's like you just have to protect each other and and I think it's part of why I was so scrappy because I you know we didn't know anything so I'm like nine years old figuring out interest rates for my parents because they don't speak English and they don't understand <laughs> do you know what I mean like they oh don't know God. how to do these things so like I I've still don't always... understand interest rates so we have <laughs> to talk either. after this <laughs> So it was like we had to also parent them through things that were completely outside of their comprehension because they didn't know the culture or the language. And right. um, we've kind of just been this unit of like we're going to get through it and and like we're, we're, we're just tied to each other forever. And um, but I, w- I mean, that whole experience, I think, of coming to America was was so formative for me, obviously. But I wasn't into anything because I don't think I really had like time to be into anything. I don't know. I think I was well, like no, learning were, how to speak English and yeah. But you were an activist like in in elementary school. Yes, 
I guess. I don't know. I never thought about it that way. But I, I, I think I just, I always loved to lead. So I was like the president of things and did things. And I, I volunteered from such a young age. Um, and it was always when I felt the most in my own skin. You know, mm-hmm. I was just like surrounded by people. I was so inspired. I was so excited. Um, and I really, you know, that feeling you get where you're like, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. And it's something that I've always struggled with finding because half of my life was doing what I thought my family and everyone expected me to do. And then the other like more secret half was doing the things that I really loved. And I considered those things hobbies. But when I would do those things, I was like, oh my God, I'm in my own skin. I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. This is what I, you know, this is what I love doing, but this is a hobby. And really only the last two years since I'm a voter was, you know, when I was like, oh, I am myself. I am, I am like, I am finally being me and I don't care how that affects everybody else. I think there's, I think there's such a culture of expectation placed on so many people and especially, you know, it's American individualism is a double-edged sword, right? Like the, the pursuit of the American dream is so beautiful. It's, it's something that all of our families did. It's why my father immigrated here. It's why my mother's mother immigrated here, you know, um, Deborah, like those, those early New York stories, you know, my, my grandmother came here with her mother and father as a child through Ellis Island. And, you know, Mm -hmm. my, her family stayed in New York and my mom grew up in the Bronx with nothing. And, and yeah, you know, those, those were, those were and are our stories. And yet there is this complex other side, this other sharp side of, of that individualist culture where we can get so caught up in proving that we're worthy, that we can get very far down these roads of proving. And I think, I think very often it can be injustice for women in particular that shake us awake where we go, wait, what am I doing? Who am I trying to prove this to? Who, who am I trying to prove that I'm worth this or that I can do this when the thing that lights me up, the thing that, you know, lights that fire in my soul is happening over there. And, and I think it's, you know, no coincidence that each of us in our own way finds like a true expression of our identity in serving other people and in demanding, you know, that, that justice be served. Mm -hmm. Um, I think back to eighth grade, you know, helping to lead a walkout at school in protest and all, all of these things, you know, we've all got these stories and, and when you fast forward to now, it, it makes sense. And even, you know, when we all think about the things we were volunteering for and working on and the causes we've supported and, and, you know, Deborah, especially for you and I being in the public eye, the privilege of having a megaphone where you can draw attention to things like, you know, LGBTQ rights and the AIDS crisis and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the list goes on, mm-hmm. you know, those, those are spaces where it's such an honor to, to spend your privilege and, and show up. Was, was being on Will and Grace and seeing the literal, um, societal change in opinion that it caused was was that what woke you up to that world or or was it a world you were already so deeply invested in because you had come up in a theater community which is generally such a safe haven for queer kids and kids who feel like outsiders 
Uh, no, it, it, it started in childhood when I, mm. when I went away for summer stock in high school and mm. I met my first openly gay performers and people. Um, and uh, ultimately what happened was my, in graduate school at NYU acting school, um, we had a games teacher named Paul Walker and uh, he had AIDS mm. and he was the first person that I had met who had AIDS and um, for three years, we watched him decline and we watched the, the chaos lesions grow and he would stay out of school and we would all worry. And, um, and three months after I graduated, um, he died at 41. Mm. And, uh, you know, going down there at, to the hospital and saying goodbye um, and seeing 200 students waiting in a line to go one by one to say goodbye and to say, I love you. Mm. Um, and you know, the impact of this person on, on all of our lives was monumental and to see him gone way too soon Mm -hmm. was catastrophic. And so really that was the, the catalyst for me and that's where it began. And it was when I got Will and Grace and I, and I, realized um, once we were embraced because we didn't know if we would be embraced, but once we were embraced and we were told by the community um, that their representation was meaningful. And um, that was when I think we all started to feel a much bigger responsibility as members of the cast. Um, and it was it was through that that show and the work we did as a cast um, that led to you know my ambassadorship and and my work in in Africa and so I I kind of feel like that work is like I call it my soul work but I kind mm. of feel like my whole life was all leading me mm. toward it yeah I feel that but I was never brave like you like the two of you like I I never led anything in 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 school high school, uh, elementary school, I, I was not like that. And, um, it just occurs to me now that, that it, it may well have been because I was feeling like such an outsider and, and, and feeling like I had to keep my voice quelled in order just to sort of survive, Mm -hmm. you know, the, Mm -hmm. the school experience. Yeah. I mean, when, when you are, experiencing your your own othering and the and the sort of variations of trauma that can make a person feel it, it becomes survival instinct so i i have an immense amount of sympathy for a kid in that position and i also think we have to consider time you know we have to consider the calendar years and and what what was being shown to us and when you know i i think about your experience in college and and it, it sort of ties for me to being in elementary school, you know, here in L.A. My dad, until he retired, was, you know, a fashion and advertising photographer. I grew up in a very queer community. And all of my, like, cute uncles at my dad's, you know, office at the photo studio, the makeup artists and the, hair, and the hairstylists and, and, you know, the wardrobe guys and this incredible very theatrical LA community at, you know, six and seven and eight years old 
Mm. Everyone was dying, you know, everyone. And, and I mean, my parents probably lost 40 to 50% of their friend group during the AIDS crisis. Oh my God. Like it was, it was unconscionable. Oh my God. And, and it, it was really hard to process as a kid, but, you know, I remember seeing the front page of, I guess it would have been the New York times, you know, when I die, drop my body on the steps of the CDC because the CDC was denying that, you know, treatment. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, it, it shouldn't be lost on any of us, you know, and anyone listening at home, please do, you know, here's a little homework moment for you please do some research on the current head of the CDC who was appointed by Donald Trump, who is a violent, dangerous um, AIDS denier, who is a man who was fired from the military for questionable scientific practices as a doctor, who believes that you fight the AIDS pandemic on planet earth by encouraging abstinence and that people don't deserve condoms or clean needles. I mean, this is, this is an affront to medicine and and an affront to, um, to stopping a disease. And and it's not lost on me that the CDC's response to COVID has been lackluster, uh, to put it kindly, and that 115,000 Americans and counting are dead because we've implemented no testing, no contact tracing. This is unacceptable. And and the parallels between the two, especially given, you know, the references to the AIDS crisis um, as a person who grew up in it, are enraging to say the least. And, wow. and, you know, like you, Deborah, I can kind of, when I look back, I go, oh, right. I was raised to do this. I was yeah. raised by a family who didn't hide it from me. I was raised by parents who talked to me about what was happening to our community during the AIDS crisis in terms of what they had witnessed protesting Vietnam and marching for civil rights and, and doing the things that they did. And so there was always a a sense that justice didn't just happen. We we had to demand it. And that's what makes me excited about what we're seeing happening right now. Something, something for whatever reason, even though this, this is long overdue, something clicked for people while we've all been at home sort mm-hmm. of in stillness. And, and the veil has been ripped off and the excuses we have made collectively for a lack of, uh, of equitable justice are not anymore. We're, we're refusing to take the status quo. And, and my hope is that that carries us forward into a new, a new place. Amen. Yeah. And then when I get nervous about things, I can call Madonna and say, okay, but legally, what does this mean? It's really nice to have a lawyer in the friend group. I'll tell you what, you know, because, because you can also explain a pursuit of justice, not simply through what can feel like a, an obvious moral lens, but through a, a legal channel. You know, when, when we see the risk of judges being appointed to courts who are political rather than, um, than, who, who prioritize politics rather than prioritizing legality and equality, we, I think we can really understand the impact. But you, you as a trained lawyer understand that in ways that are 
I think, so important to the rest of us. And it's so helpful to, to be able to call on you with, with those questions. So thanks for going to law school for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad to have incurred that debt for, for this. Um, I'm so but, sorry about that part. You know, it's what's so, just listening to you speak, I, I have no idea if, if anything I'm about to say is not okay to say, but what I keep finding myself feeling over the last three weeks is obviously like heartbreak, but putting, just changing that for one second. I constantly just sit there and I feel like my brain is exploding because I can't even believe that we're having the conversations that we're having. Mm. The fact that we're like having conversations about Confederate flags is shocking. Like when you take us, I understand like that we need to talk about them because we have to address them. But also the fact that we're talking about this, like it's an actual conversation and it's not so clear how this is supposed to move forward. And I feel the same way every time we talk about COVID and our responses to testing. I feel this way even yet to yesterday with the Supreme Court and the ruling on, on gay rights. And I was like, of course. What are you talking about? Why would you ever be able to discriminate against someone because of their of of this? Like, how are we? I mean, it was such a victory, but it shouldn't even have been a conversation. This is America, and I feel that way yeah. today about the DACA ruling. That was, it's a, such an amazing day, and I have been you know following this DACA thing so closely, and it really just impacts me on such a deep level. But I'm like. Did we really need a ruling? I mean, we're America. Like, why mm-hmm. are we having these conversations as if it's a thousand years ago? It's, I, it's shocking. We know the we know what is right as a country, right? And we know mm. what our country's values are. And it's sometimes I'm having a really hard time dignifying some of these conversations and being like, well, the reason that you shouldn't have a Confederate flag is similar to how you would feel if you walked and saw like a Hitler statue. I mean, really? You can't make that connection in your brain? But does it strike you? And and this is what makes me curious. We claim to know what our ideals are, but we've never actually upheld the ideals for anyone but the quote unquote ruling class. We've never, we've never really been the land of the free or or equal. We we have these beautiful ideals, and I believe it's our job generationally to demand that we move closer and closer to them. But when you consider the fact that the Jim Crow era was less than 100 years ago, when you consider the fact that we just celebrated Loving Day because the right to have an interracial marriage was won in, what is it, 1967 or 68? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that's mental to me. And and me it's too. it's really no different than this debate about, you know, quote unquote gay marriage. It's like, let's stop calling it gay marriage or interracial marriage. Marriage is marriage. If you love someone and you want to marry them, what business is that of anyone but you? Like, unless think, you're being coerced into a marriage, I don't think yeah. anyone should be able to weigh in on it. I think that's the thing that has been so, um, just, it, it's been such a shock to the system you know, I, I, we've all known that that there is a a race problem in our in our country. That mm. that we are not we are not living the the vision that our founders had. Mm-hmm. Um, but because of this incredible advent of the cell phone video, mm. now we are deluged 
with these videos from all over our country of these horrifically brazen racist uh, interactions. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for me, that's, that's the thing. It's like, obviously people of color, they're, they're like, duh, of course, this is, we've known this forever, you know, but um, I, I, I think I have to admit that I, I am now realizing that our country is so much more racist than I ever, Mm -hmm. ever could even imagine. Mm-hmm. And that it really it, it it's it, it makes me so angry, and it, I I you know seeing these seeing people screaming at a at a grocery store, you know, and and it, Amy Cooper in the in you know Manhattan, you know, mm-hmm. calling the police. I mean, it's just it's it's so awful. There's so but much people refusing to wear masks. I mean, it's, it's there's all killing, of these things that are killing happen- somebody because you know, walking into a store, going going back, getting a, a gun, and killing the, you know, the the guard who said, "I'm sorry, you can't come in without a mask," and then killing him. It's really crazy, and and what's interesting to me is there are people who haven't wanted to see it. And to your point, Deborah, I think what's interesting about that when you dig deeper is we were all raised to believe that the country was founded on a set of ideals and that it was screwed up along the way. But many of us were told overtly and covertly that was in the past. Yes. And I think that's why a lot of people prior to really being able to see that it is not in the past, being able to see it with their own eye, I think what that can be possible. It's, it's a, it's a shaking core belief system. Yes. You know, it, it's like a, it's an internal earthquake to be confronted with this reality. But I think it is the the important emotional earthquake of our lifetime. Yes, absolutely. It, it is is a real understanding that until everybody's free, nobody's free. Mm-hmm. And that isn't something a wise civil rights leader said in the 60s. That's true today. And and my my hope is that people will open themselves to that inner kind of quaking on many levels. Because even to your point about masks, Mandana, no one has ever thrown a fit over their civil rights being violated when they walk up to a restaurant uh, by a beach or a lake in the middle of the country and the restaurant says, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Yep. That's simply a sanitary policy. And right now we are in the middle of a pandemic which requires enhanced sanitary measures. And that's what a mask is. And if you feel like you're not at risk, okay, but I am, I'm an asthmatic. I have a compromised immune system because my lungs are not functional at the level of an average person's. So if you don't want to wear a mask for you, please wear a mask for me. Please wear a mask for my father. You know, I I just don't understand this. I had to pick up a prescription for Peter yesterday and I walk up to the pharmacy and of course I'm wearing a mask and gloves and the woman looks at me and she goes, oh, you must be a Democrat. And I was like, what? And she goes, and she said, Republican, I I didn't even say this. She said, Republicans refuse to wear a mask and all Democrats wear one. And, And I was like, what? And she goes, I have never seen people think that a health crisis is partisan in my like, 
She was like, I've been working as a pharmacist for 35 years. I've never experienced anything like this before. But this is the danger of our current climate. This is the danger of not having a president, but having a a wannabe dictator. This is the danger of Fox News not having any regulatory um, infractions placed upon them for of false news. This, you know, when when someone like Tucker Carlson's able to go on the air and oh. bemoan mask wearing, th- this is not acceptable. And our and president told is, people to drink bleach. Like I yeah. don't even. There's nowhere you get. You can't get past that. <laughs> he's he said that coronavirus is just going to disappear this week. Yeah, this week. Yeah. and and we know that when we, twenty states. Cases, are, are, you know, are just surging. Increasing, yeah. Uh, this week, um, the week we are recording, Arkansas saw 100% increase in cases. Um, more states than not are witnessing case increasing to levels that are um, compromising ER capacities. And, and the median age of people dying is 48. Yeah. People think it's only for the elderly. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying. Did, did you guys see the report that came out Texas reopened and a woman and her friends decided to go to a bar, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're regulating how many people can go in everything's going to be safe. There's safety protocols and all 15 of them after one night out tested positive for COVID. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I don't, you know, gotcha. I mean, it as a, how important this is there were 50,000 people in the streets marching in Los Angeles, you know, over the last two weeks for Black Lives Matter. I attended a number of marches in a mask. Um, The photos, obviously the aerial photos look incredible, but on the ground, people were pretty spaced. There were very few moments, you know, I wouldn't say a full six feet, but I'd say like I had at least an arm's radius around me at all times, Mm -hmm. aside from if I was walking next to one of people in my isolation pod. Um, I went to multiple protests and because California's governor, his president has not, you know, we can all get free testing. And I went and had a COVID test and I'm negative. And every single person at the protest I was at was wearing a mask. And Um, people who've gone into small bars or restaurants without masks testing positive for this virus that is deadly. And it those those should be proofs enough for people and and i'm i'm saddened by the fact that that we have quote leadership that wants to politicize a pandemic so that it doesn't hurt them in the election booth rather than own that they've appointed someone who was fired from the US military for having such a terrible scientific record and that they defunded the pandemic response team, and that they didn't, once the uh, Defense Production Act was put into place, they didn't actually order any United States fact to do anything with it. I mean, this is this is such a dereliction of duty that it, that it makes my head spin. And that, I would wager for all of us, is why when people say, well, why do you care so much why do you why do you dedicate all your time to activism i'm like because nobody's home upstairs <laughs> if it's not us then who you know it's weird because when deborah and i wanted to start the podcast it literally started 
from that exact conversation. We sat down and we were talking about how so many people in our lives come up to us all the time and are like, I don't know how you do this. It must be so exhausting. Or I wish I could do this, but I would, I don't even like, how did you learn how to do, you know? And we realized like people were, were so afraid of doing something or learning about yeah. something or taking a position on something. And people were like, wow, That's it's so failing. amazing that you do this. And we were like, you can do it. I, I had, no, it's not like I went to school to do this. Like we always joke, like no one knighted us an activist. Like we literally saw something and we're like, that's not okay. And then we learned about it and then we spoke about it. And then we, the next logical step was like, maybe I can try to do something about it or help with it and give mm-hmm. one hour a week, one hour a month, 10 hours a month to trying to make this thing that I care about better. Because I find it so hard to believe that people don't have issues that keep them up at night, like something that doesn't sit with them. And it could be any issue. It could be anything. But I just believe fundamentally as like human beings, when we go to bed, there is something like some nagging thing inside. And I think we, we were like, okay, how do we, how do we dispel this idea that activism is something that other people are supposed to do or, Oh, they got Mm -hmm. it. Or Mm -hmm. I don't have enough followers. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough experience it because it, I mean, the the common thread in every single person that we interviewed was they had no training. They didn't think they were starting a foundation or a movement. Like they really just decided to do more than nothing. Right. So where did the idea come from? How how does this, oh, we can pass on some tools of how we've stepped into these spaces of activists. How does that conversation turn into this phenomenal podcast? It it really just it it really came out of being nerdy fans of these superstars. It really all <laughs> right. I mean, it did. I mean, yes. I you know I have terrible insomnia, so I you know I would read and I would find articles and discover extraordinary people, and I would send it to Mandana and be like, "Look at this person." And then she would find something and she would send it to me. And I think at first it was really to, to inspire each other to keep going. You know, it's been a very difficult few years. And I think as mm. our energies have sagged, it was like, okay, look, look, there are people out there who are doing great things and, and mm-hmm. we can keep going. And then after a while, we realized, look at all of these people. And, yeah. you know, th- and then we thought, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's, you know, such uncertainty and fear. And we wanted to put something out that would inspire people and empower people. And, um, you know, we don't pretend to be experts at anything where we literally are just fans who just trapped these people in a room so that we can ask them all the questions that we had. (laughs) Yeah, part of it was just like full fangirl, like, I want to be friends with this person. And if we did a podcast, we can be their friend and get their phone number. And the other part was just, you know, when we were talking about who, so the podcast is called The Dissenters and there's 20 of them. And the idea Mm. was like, okay, each one of them is so different from the other. And so one is like is fashion, one's entertainment, one is, you know, sports, one is animal, one is, you know, they're all like environment. They're all working on in different categories and they're all standing up for different issues. Um, and, and it's really what we kept reading was this common thread of people who, 
you know, it all came from heart. It all just came from, I, I want to do something. Something is not okay, right? And that's obviously what, where dissent comes from. Mm-hmm. And it's just someone saying, this isn't okay and there's a way that's better and I'm going to try to help build it. And yes. I think what we learn through all these conversations is just that, right? Is that everyone kind of figured it out as they went along. Like nobody had all the information when they started. And, and if uh. we all, I mean, like when I think back to when we started, I'm a voter, None of us knew what we were doing. We had no idea how to start yeah. a foundation. We had no idea how to start a movement. We did not know. I didn't know any voting laws in America. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we didn't know. We just knew that this was something that we wanted to do. We knew this was a moment for us to create something. You know, we all just kind of sat in that room and we're like, there is, there's a better way and we we want to build it. And we're committed to learning through the process and not waiting until we feel like we have every piece of information to start. And dissent, to your point, feels to me and and does it feel to you immensely patriotic yes Yes. well I mean Um, obviously Ruth Bader Ginsburg comes to mind and she's like the coolest person that has ever lived Um, (laughs) but it also is is this idea of of just saying of of challenging the status quo right Mm -hmm. it's just saying whatever this is it's not okay Mm-hmm. And that is really powerful. And when we looked at everyone, obviously you are a dissenter and it was like, these that's what these people all did, right? They all kind of stood up to some form of injustice, which is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And they, the other thing that, that ties them all together is that they failed at some point in the process or they, they, you know, hit a, a formidable obstacle and yeah. decided to keep going. Yeah. That was that was the thing and I think that's the thing that that interested me the most is to be like okay you, um okay Adam Schiff you you lost your election twice two two times in a row. Yeah. You know I mean what would what would make you go and do it again? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And and yeah. and sometimes that's really the only difference. Yeah, the, the the desire to persevere, the the belief that you know, as is famously said, the 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 arc of justice is long, but you know, or the or the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Like if you just hold on to your principles, if you move, you know, toward toward more love and fairness and equality, and and fighting for those things, you know, you got to stay in the game to to win it. So that, yeah. that I find so inspiring. Who, who are some of the people that um, everyone listening to us chat about all these things today will be able to hear on the podcast? Oh, well, well you obviously. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. You Glenn and Doyle. Sophia Bush. Yes, she um, is. I think Glenn and Doyle, um, Jane Fonda, Shannon Watts, um, Congressman Adam Schiff, um, oh my God, we had this woman named Amanda Wynn, you have to have on, and she is nominated for Nobel Peace Prize, and she's 29, and she's written more laws than literally anyone ever, and she wants to go to space, and everything she does is informed. I'm like, everything she's that comes out of your mouth is just brilliant. Wow. Um, she's unbelievable. Schuler. Oh, yeah, he's so great. I mean, there were so many people that are just like uh, Christian Seriano and talking about his inclusivity. You know, his work and inclusivity and Jamila, who talks mm. about like her her fight against uh, weight loss, you know, and all of these Shaming things that people, and- it's just um she I mean, the, all these stories have just been 
so incredibly. I mean, we talked to Preet Bharara, who is the love of my life. Um, and I really Beyond. have a crush on him. And I was really like awkwardly fangirling. Um, it was not I'm like not cool in these situations so I was just like super awkward she, and she was vibrating she was literally I was like, vibrating I, I'm not, I, I don't know how to be cool about that either honestly like <laughs> give me a break it's so hard um yeah I've, nothing has taught me how to be cool in situations like this I'm just like some geeky like my mouth is wide open I'm smiling so hard and I'm like so does this mean we're fr-? like literally with while we're talking to Adam Schiff we looked at him we're like <laughs> So does this mean we're friends? <laughs> and and he's like, said, I'll tell people that if, if you, you do. do. And I was like, okay, that means we're friends. <laughs> oh my God, I'm obsessed. <laughs> we don't even need to air this. Who cares? We're friends with Adam Schiff now. This That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it's been really, really, really fun. I, we were editing your episode this week and I texted you. I was like... God, you are so smart. It's crazy. You are very kind. <laughs> just just a bunch of ladies being nerdy over here, you know? We love nerds. I know. I love a nerd. I love, love, love a nerd. So when you think about all of those incredible conversations you got to have, and, and Deborah, to your point, people who lead despite uh, setbacks, um, who, who tend to see their capacity for empathy grow as they do so, is there advice that you would give to the folks at home who are listening to us today? And, and maybe perhaps, uh, maybe particularly our young listeners who, who do want to get started um, with civic engagement, with, with showing up for their communities, but maybe they don't know where to take the first step. I think the first step is just turning inward and and looking inside your heart and asking the question, what do I care about? What what do I see that I believe deeply has to change? Mm. Um, I think that's step one because if you if it, it, you know there's no room for ego in this kind of work. It it you really are driven and. Um, energized by the the passion that you have for the injustice that you are working to try and fix. So I think it's just identifying that first. And then from there you can you can do research. You can read books or you can read newspaper articles and you can you can find leaders in that lane and mm. you know just just educate yourself and and very slowly you will see that oppor- opportunities will arise mm. where where you can you know put your email in to some you know some group and say i just i just want to get emails every week telling me what's going on i think that's such such good advice Deborah. thank you one of my favorite quotes was in our first conversation with Glennon Doyle. And she said, you know, the, the number one thing everyone always asks me is how do I find my purpose and how do I find my people? And if you sit with what actually pisses you off, you find your purpose. And when you chase your purpose, it's like a big red arrow to your people. 
And that was Um, nothing in my life has been more true. And I think that we've, we've, we learned that from every single person we spoke with. Um, And so I, I mean, to Deborah's point, I think it really is just looking inward and figuring out like what, what you feel like you need to do more about. Um, Uh And then selfishly, I would just say that everyone has to vote. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And, and I will reiterate, and I'm sure there are some people who are like, you've told us this 1 million times, but for those of you who haven't heard it, please text. You're going to want to write this down. I'm giving you a second to like open your notes app, get a pen, whatever you need. Okay, good. Text the word voter to 26797. We built this text line, us, the the ladies you're hearing from right now, it's not going to sign you up for something weird. But what it does is it will check your registration status. It will get you registered if you are, hooray, hurrah, a first-time voter. It will give you updates on your local election that you will need to have. It's a very important little text line. So again, text voter to 26797. Amazing. Yeah. Loves, I have one final question for you, which is my favorite thing to ask everyone who comes up. So, um, as you know, the show is called Work in Progress, and I'm curious, when you hear the phrase, what comes to mind as a work in progress in your life right now? Everything. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I consider myself a perpetual student. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm 52, and I'm, I feel like I'm just, just learning about some really, really important things that are happening in our country and, and learning mm. about our history. And um, I, th- I think I love that phrase um, because I think that it can be a goal. It can be a goal to be a work in progress, to, rec- mm. to recognize that you don't know and to recognize that there, there is always more to learn and, and that it will ultimately make you grow as a human. Mm. I, I was actually weirdly going to say something very similar and, and somehow tie it back to my childhood, which is I always grew up with this idea that I had to be really perfect and everything in my life was so calculated and I had to like do this thing to get this grade, to get this on the resume, to get this internship, to get this job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt like my entire life was like building this incredible resume Um, And I've had all these really interesting and weird shifts in my career as I've tried to like work up this ladder. And and for the last two years, I've kind of like paused and realized that so much of that was bullshit. And, And I'm finally doing the things that I really care about that feel really important. And I, and, and I've finally come into terms with like, there is no like, there's no climbing, there's no ladder. Like I, I am like a perpetual work in progress. And and who I am is going to reflect what is happening in my life and what is happening in my heart at that point in my life. And it will evolve. Like just because I cared about something 10 years ago doesn't mean I'm going to care about it today. I mean, mm. right now, the idea that I would work in fashion is shocking. You know, like I couldn't even imagine doing that today. And 10 years ago, that was the most important thing to me in my life. And it was important to me then. It just doesn't mean that it has to be important to me now. And and I've accepted it and it's been so amazing to be able to just kind of own that. I love that. And I love the the notion that it's okay throughout your life to continue evolving and learning and pursuing new passions. You you don't need to put yourself in any kind of box. 
Well, I think that, I think that it's, it, you know, we, we look around and we see so much divisiveness and, you know, so much uh, racism. And I, I think that we, we have to have hope that all of us are capable of, of becoming a better version of ourselves. And by, by doing that, we become a better, stronger, more compassionate country. Here, here. Thank you Yay, guys so Sophia, much. Sophia, run for office now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, Sophia, yes. become the president and save the country. And, and uh, we will work on your campaign. Here's the um, thing. Yeah. If, if we're electing people from TV, not Why no. not? <laughs> like, we could do this, guys. We could do this. You could do this in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. So you just tell us when. We'll, we'll, <laughs> you know, I love to build a campaign so. and we will be there. <laughs> All right. We'll discuss. Okay. <laughs> I love you both so much. Thank I love you. you. Thank you for having us. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy.